All right, let's read again. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. I wonder, friends, if you've thought about that little word in there, the word all, if you really thought about that very much. Why do you think he has that word all in there? Now, most people just kind of go over that word very, very easily and think not too much about it. Well, let me give it to you this way. Let's just see if you can come up with it. Now, let's say I have been appointed. By the way, I have a cousin who's the head of all the state highways here in Texas. But let's say that he becomes governor the next time and uh, next election. And he says, now, uh, Harry, I want you to be the head of state highways. I say to him, well, Ray, not unless you give me a full hand, a free hand, to do whatever I want, whatever I think is best. Well, he said, fine. So I say, I'm only going to change one law on the highways. And that one law that I'll change is this. We're going to take all lines out of the highway. There'll be no dotted lines. There'll be no yellow lines. There'll be no lines in the highways. Now, what am I inferring and also implying when I say there'll be no lines in the highways? Well, come on, tell me. No, 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 no. Wait a minute, I'm still leaving the stop sign out. I'm still leaving the stop and go lights. I'm still leaving the speed limit signs up. I'm only changing one law. Well, that's true. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I take all the lines out of the highway, what am I saying? What am I saying? Now, you can come this way on this side of the road, and I can go that way on this side of the road. Or I can go this way on this side of the road, and you can come this way on this side of the road. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So then I'm inferring that you can drive on either side of the road, right? Going either direction. Right? Both directions? What's going to happen on our highway? But wait a minute. I only changed one law. Just one. Now, why do you think, he says, that thou mayest observe to do according to all? No, that's not the answer. One law all. That's true, but that's not the answer. That's right. The, all the laws are important that he has given. He hasn't given us one too many, and he hasn't given us one less than what he should have that every one of them are necessary, every one of them are important, every one of them lies within the nature of things. You want to get that? Within the nature of things. The law of God doesn't come from the will of God. It comes from the nature of things in which and the way He has created them. They're a necessity, not from His will. From his mind. Big difference there, my friend. 
so that we need every one of them. So then when we say, well, now this particular one, I'm not going to pay attention to that one. What are we doing to ourselves and to others? Oh, terrible. All right, but now let's say that my cousin says to me, hey, Harry, now you can do anything you want to the laws, and you're also going to be in charge of the state, the poli the state police, in charge of safety, you're in charge of the highways, and my cousin is a governor, and I go to him and I say, well, you know, we got all these young people, it's got these Jaguars, these Dusters, these Camaros, these Cadillacs, these Renaults and these Mercedes, and some of them, their parents have spent thirty, forty thousand bucks for these, and we're inhibiting them with these speed limits, aren't we? They're not getting the most fun out of these. So I'd like to take all the lines out of the highways. I'd like to take down all speed limits, all stop signs, all stop and go lights. The first one to the corner gets it, and the undertaker gets all the ties. All right, now let's just say we take down all of these signs alongside the road, all stop signs, all caution signs, all lines out of the middle of the highway. Let's say we do that. We get rid of all of them. All right, now watch. So I come to the state house two weeks later, and I say, how are you, Ray? He said, how am I? Man, I almost got killed three times on the way to work this morning. And last week, he says, Harry, do you know that here in the state of Texas we had 15,000 people killed on the highways? I say, yeah, maybe we ought to appoint a committee, huh? <laughs> ought to appoint a committee to study this, right? So I go to see him a month from now and say, how's things, Ray? Well, he said, I was in three wrecks last week on my way to work. You know, now uh, we're not killing so many. We got her down to 12,000 a week. Now, you would say that there was something wrong with the governor and there's something wrong with me if I wanted to do that. But would you believe it? The fundamentalists and the preachers have done that to the law of God in our day. They've done that to the law of God. Don't you blame the educators. Don't you blame the lawyers for tearing down the laws if, when the preachers have been doing it for 50, 60, and 100 years, saying the law is not for you. Is that right? Have you ever had a sad day? <laughs> then you wonder why you got all this sin, you got all these murders, you got all these rapes, you got all this stuff going on, all this lawlessness. One dear brother pointed out to me, sitting right back there, Oh God, it's time for thee to work. They've made void thy law. They've made void thy law. And by the way, it's 119th Psalm, the 126th verse. And don't you blame the lawyers. The preachers have done it. The teachers, the so-called Bible teachers. Now, we're going to go ahead and we're going to see if this is really the, the biblical approach to it. If this is the way they ought to be talking about law. May God have mercy upon me if I don't give you the right view of it. Now, please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the seventh chapter of Ezra. I like to read the tenth verse, and I'm going to give you the outline for one of your first sermons. Ezra 7.10. Here's a little farmer. I want to show you what he did, and he winds up with a book named after him in the Word of God. Ezra 7.10. That's right beside the book of Hezekiah. <laughs> For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it 
and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So look, it's seek, do, and what? Teach. Boy, there's three real verbs. There's an outline for your first sermon. Seek, do, teach. If we don't do it, there's none, no use doing the other. But seek, do, and teach. And this man became known around the world by those three things. Seek, do, and teach. Now, would you please turn your Bible to the first psalm. Psalm 1. Let's see what the psalmist has to say about the blessed Word of God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. How about that? And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers. That word planted. Oh, get that word planted. It's there. It isn't driven around by every wind of doctrine. It's there. Planted. <laughs> like, a, like a post. Got 20 feet below the ground, that much above. <laughs> planted. By the rivers of water. And that's where you get your nourishment for a tree from water, isn't it? One of the big ones. Some of these trees use 80 gallons a minute on a hot day. 80 gallons. I'm talking about great big ones now like that. A redwood. At 80 gallons. Planted by the rivers of water. That bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, dear friends, certain things here, how he is, and then what the result is. Look, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful over there with the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I'd like to see you people go to a New York Yankee Stadium baseball game and see if you can sit there and stomach all of that filthy, rotten, yelling, and behavior of those fans. If you can, there's something wrong with you. I don't even think you're saved if you can go there and enjoy it. Nobody was ever more of a baseball fan than me. I wouldn't, now get this, friends, I wouldn't in front of a mixed audience tell you what they yell at the Boston Red Sox. 30, 40, 50,000 yelling and screaming the same filthy, obscene remarks at those baseball players. And here's men in there with their 8, 10-year-old boys taking them. I have a Christian publisher friend who says, Harry has never so embarrassed in my life, and I took my boys to the big league baseball game. Go to Milwaukee. Go up there and let them get beer slopped all over you. Hear all the dirty, rotten, filthy talk. If you can enjoy that, I'm telling you, that's the seat of the scornful. And by the way, I could go another half an hour on the seat of the scornful where the Christians think they can go. I've had people tell me, well, I just take Jesus with me everywhere. <laughs> you do? My Bible says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You don't take him anywhere. You follow him and he doesn't go to those places. You get that? He doesn't go to those places. You follow him. He doesn't follow you. And I mean they're rotten and they're filthy and they're nasty. Yet I'm surprised but many of these so-called servants of God, they wonder why there's no power in their life, no power in their sermons, 
Well, I'll tell you why. And the world looks at them, they can't tell the difference. They can't tell the difference. They're just as worldly as, a, as the worldlings. Well, that's what he's talking about here, the seat of the scornful. The seat of the scornful. Let me tell you something. One time I knew who played shortstop in every baseball team in the Pacific Coast League, the International League, the American Association, and both big leagues. I think I knew something about baseball, and I could, by the way, tell you the batting average minute most of the time. But I sat in the Indianapolis Indians ballpark. I'd only been saved just a couple of years. I sat there and I smelled all that stale beer and all that hollering and cursing and swearing around there. The twilight night doubleheader went into 12:30 at night. I had my nephew with me. His father had left home. Had left my sister. Just trying to show the boy a nice time, and I sat there and I heard all this cursing and swearing. It was a fright. This is the June of 1948. And I sat there and I bowed my head and I said, Oh dear God, what am I doing in such a filthy, rotten, garbage dump as this? Now the Lord seemed to say to me, Yes, as a child of mine, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I said, Dear God, by your mercy and your grace, by your mercy and your grace, this will be the end of this. This will be the end of it. Another, never saw another American Association game, another Pacific Coast League game, another big league game to this day, and I don't intend to see one. And I've had all kinds. And you know what? I'd never really met one a soul up to that time. Thought I was a Christian. Thought I was a Christian. The most precious thing you have, young people, is time. Did you know that? It's time. It's more precious than if you had all endless amount of money because you wouldn't know where to put it if you did have it. Most people that had all the money to give to the gospel, they'd, they'd put it where it hurts the gospel. You know there's enough money given now to get the world evangelized if it was given in the right places? But I'd say 90% of the money that's given today is not given in the right places. So don't think, friends, that money is a big problem. The big problem is to get Christians to use their time in the right way. Use their time in the right way. Now look at the 19th Psalm with me, if you will, please. Look at the seventh verse. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is Psalm 19. Now I go into the ninth verse. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb. How come you kids don't sing anymore around here? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting us all. I used to hear Whammer sing that, and I'd sit there and weep. The Spirit of God would speak to me. I wish I could sing. I'd sing it for you. So you're lucky that I'm not trying. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, my friends, would you please turn to the 119th Psalm? Now, we're going to see what God is saying about some of this. Let me tell you, friends, I've had many blessings in trying to serve the Lord these several decades. But I want to tell you three distinct blessings I've had. 
Three different times I've been invited by churches to come and spend one Sunday each on each one of the Ten Commandments. Now, my friends, every commandment has a principle behind it. By principle, I mean the why. The why God asks us not to do something or to do something. Now, if you can find the why behind the commandment, oh, it'll, it'll just unfold in front of you like an atom bomb exploding. When I speak on the commandments, any one of them, my friends, I have a hard time stopping under two hours. Two hours. You know why? There's so much in them. There is so much in them. Now, my dear friends, if you want to see conviction of sin, here it is. I want you to write this down. You preach the law of God. And here's how you preach it. Preach how right it is. Preach the reasonableness of the law. Preach the practicality of the law. Otherwise, it is practical for your everyday life. Preach the fitness, the fitness of it to your nature and to my nature. Preach the universality of the law. Otherwise, it's the same for the black man in Africa as it is for us right here. The same for the Eskimo as it is for us right here. Otherwise, man is the same all over this globe. I have a nephew at the University of Chicago that tells me that an anthropological study has been made of five different aboriginal tribes. And they found in each one of these, and four of them were on different continents, that they all had a system of law that went back so close to the Ten Commandments. I've been in countries. We're not Christian by any stretch of any imagination. You think there is much stealing? I've walked down through bazaars. You go a half a mile long, nobody there. They're home having a siesta. It's lunchtime. There's, their, there's all their stuff hanging up. There's all their stuff hanging up. Why do you think nobody's stealing it? I'll tell you why. Because judgment is executed speedily upon the sons of men there. <laughs> That's why they've learned one biblical principle. I was, I was working in a country on the Persian Gulf. I worked there as recently as a year ago last May. They have no rapes in this country. No rape. They'll go a whole year with no rape. You know why? Let me tell you. The last rape they had, now this particular country doesn't even have a jail. You're going to see why they don't have a jail <laughs> real, real quick. When they arrest somebody for rape, they take them to the next United Arab Emirate where they have a jail, and they take them there in a helicopter, and about 5,000 feet in the air, they always try to escape. You get what I just said? So if you want a free ride in a helicopter with a sudden stop, just rape somebody in that country. There are no rapes. There are no rapes in that country. By the way, I don't care what you think of Adolf Hitler. You can't think any less of him than I do. But let me tell you something. He knew something about law that I wish Northwestern University had learned, their law department, because they're the ones that messed up this country the most by getting rid of the capital punishment. But did you know that when Adolf Hitler took over in Germany, back there in 1933, they were in a worse depression than we were. Sixty percent of the men alone in Stuttgart were unemployed. They had food riots. 
You know, it was an impossibility for a woman to walk outdoors anywhere from Hamburg to Munich, from Nuremberg over to Kern, outdoors at night without getting mugged, purse snatched, beaten up. It was impossible. There's so much of it. You know, Hitler stopped it all in two weeks. A woman could walk outdoors after the first two weeks he was in power. She'd never get mugged. She wouldn't get strong-armed. She wouldn't get beaten. For the 13 years he was in power, after the first two weeks, there wasn't any. You know how he stopped it? He passed a law that if any man was apprehended and convicted of beating up a woman, snatching her purse, mugging her, they cut his head off. First week after it was signed, they caught two men. The second week, they cut both their heads off, and that was the end of it. After all, the law is for the greatest good of the greatest number of people, isn't it? Law is for the greatest good of the greatest number of people. That's not to say that sometimes there aren't unfair laws. Not to say that at all, but that's the way it is. The law is a fence. It's to protect the people. All right, now please notice now the first verse of Psalm 119. See what God says. See if this is what man is saying in our day. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Hey, I thought you couldn't. What's it saying? Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Look at the second verse. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and seek him with the whole heart. I thought you couldn't. God here is saying, blessed are they that keep his testimonies, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now look at the third one. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. I was taught that was impossible. What's the word of God saying? <laughs> you can do it. Let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> Let me tell you something, dear friends. When we get finished here today, you're going to see a great big sign over the end of this right up here. You won't see it literally, but the word that's going to come to you is victory. Victory. And I don't mean in the Super Bowl either. Victory right in that area where you need it. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Now, please turn to the 99th verse of the 119th Psalm, if you will, please. <laughs> look at what the psalmist says here. This is quite a statement. But look why he can say it. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. What a statement. The 99th verse of the 119th Psalm. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Look at the 126th verse. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now look at the 165th verse, if you will, please. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them, not even Harry Khan. Get that? Great peace. Now, what is peace? Peace is a lack of agitation, friends. If you saw a lake and I said it's peaceful and it had 20-foot high waves, would you say it was peaceful? No, it's agitated, isn't it? But how, how are most people today? Well, they're agitated. They're not getting enough money at work. Well, they don't have a big enough house. First, when they got married, she said, Oh, honey, I could live with you in a basement apartment. Well, I can tell you, ten years later, they're not talking like that. 
Because you know why? The people across the street aren't living in a basement apartment. They've got a, they a two-bedroom home, and now they're building a third bedroom. We've got to have three bedrooms. Look, they've got a two-car garage. I remember in California, if you didn't have two cars, you weren't even saved. Now it is, if you don't take Shackley food, you're not saved out there. Now, I tell you, you got more health food nuts and more people walking around out there looking like death takes a holiday in any state I know. Yet, I, I quote him a simple verse and I act like I, it's not from the Bible. And the Bible says, take no thought for what you shall eat. Yet, they're all sitting around talking, don't eat sugar, don't eat this, don't eat that. They spend more time talking about what not to eat and they walk around living off of seeds. <laughs> Bird seed, sunflower seeds. My goodness, they act like they never, heard, never read 1 Timothy 4, 3. Act like, act like I never read the Bible. They're all hung up on not food, the, uh, the abstinence of food. Take no thought for what you shall eat. When are we going to let God say what he means and mean what he says? When are we going to make it so important like that? There's one fellow you'd all know him if I mentioned his name. I sat down and had breakfast with he and his wife, and just on purpose, I put three spoons full of sugar in it, and he went right through the ceiling. <laughs> I ruined his whole week. I ruined his whole week. Oh, sugar's poisonous, this, 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 and that. But yet he stood up there giving these kids the worst doctrine I'd heard in 50 years. Yet he knew all about food, but he knew so little about doctrine. Why? His emphasis was in the wrong place. Should have been the food of God. The Word of God. Not in the literal out there. He just simply says to us, take no thought for what you shall eat. That's pretty plain. Pretty plain. Now look at this 165th verse. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. By the way, some of your translations out there may say, great peace have they which love thy law, and there is no occasion of stumbling. No occasion. You know what that means? no circumstance into which they get that they'll stumble. They got no sense to stay away from that. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, how many of you can finish this verse? I'm going to quote to you. Where there is no vision, the people what? What's the rest of it? Turn Matthew, to Proverbs 29, 18. Proverbs 29, 18. Someone read it for us. Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Oh, how about that verse? When are we going to start quoting the other part of that verse? The last part. Now, now I want you, dear friends, I want to see if you've been really studying this week. Why is a man who's keeping the law, why is he happy? That's good. Somebody else. That's right. Very good. Somebody else. Yet yeah, I bet you didn't even know that was in the Bible, did you? Somebody else out there. Within the confines of the law, there's freedom and liberty. There sure is. There's freedom and liberty. And in keeping the law, you have fellowship with God, and that's what we were made for. So that you have that love relationship, and that will fulfill us. That's fine. 
That's right. You're, yes, sir. That's right. Very good. Yes. What is holiness? Well, more than that. Let me give you a definition of holiness. Holiness is obeying the spiritual enlightenment that you have from a right intention of heart. See, if you don't put a right intention of heart, you got legalism. Holiness is obeying the spiritual enlightenment that you have, not what the Pope has, what Billy Graham has, what Watchman Nee has, no, what you have, what you have. Holiness is obeying the spiritual enlightenment that you have from a right intention of heart. Otherwise, you're not doing it to get to heaven. You're doing it because you love God, because God deserves to be obeyed, and God's happiness is more important than ours. Now, isn't that within the realm of possibility? Yet, I went to schools where they taught holiness was an impossible thing. Now, Peter said, be ye holy. He didn't say aim at it, did he? <laughs> he said, be ye holy. Now, wouldn't it be unrighteous to demand something of people that was an impossibility? The great Charles Grandison Finney on page three of his systematic theology says this, to talk of inability to obey moral laws, to talk nonsense. Boy, I wish we could get the church to know that. To talk of inability to obey moral laws, to talk nonsense. So are you going to have revival talking nonsense? I should say you're not. You're not. But where there is no vision, the people what? Mm, but wait a minute. What do some of your Bibles there say instead of vision? <laughs> what does your say? Well, no revelation. What is revelation? It's truth about God, isn't it? It's truth about God. So, where there is no truth about God, the people what? They perish. But... He gives the other opposite extreme. What's the other opposite there? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now I'll turn back in your Bibles to one, just one page, to 28th chapter of Proverbs. And let's start looking at the fourth verse. And we're going to go through the seventh verse. They that forsake the law praise the wicked, but such as keep the law contend with them. Thought you couldn't. Proverbs 28, 24. Now look at the fifth. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Better is a poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of righteous men shameth his father. But whoso keepeth the law. Now, my dear friends, I'm going to show you before this section is over, this session rather, that the truly saved person who's in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father and His Son and with His fellow man keeps the law of God without him grinding at it and without him being aware of it. <laughs> without even grinding at it, without him being aware of it. So, 
In grace, it's not the right to do as you please. It's the ability to do what you ought to do. Now turn your Bibles, if you will, please, to Luke 1, 6. Luke 1, 6. This is speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. How? Say, hey, this is the Holy Spirit's evaluation of them, not mine. Not theirs. The Holy Spirit. We read we got the Word of God. How? Holy men of old were moved, right? The Holy Spirit. Look what he says. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now, friends, get this. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless without the Holy Ghost. Wasn't even given yet. So they were doing without him what we're saying people can't do with him. Why, that's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. I have a friend. He buried his first wife in the jungles of Sumatra. Man, he has memorized whole books. First, second Timothy, Hebrews. Man, can he quote. He's talking to a friend of mine one day and he's giving the old, this old antinomian approach. You see, when you say people can't obey the law of God and don't obey the law, that, you're an antinomian. Or you don't need to obey the law of God. You're an antinomian. Nomos is a Greek word for law. N-O-M-O-S. Antinomian is a person who says the law is not for today and has no claims and there's no consequences to it today. That's an antinomian. Well, this poor guy had been around antinomians and I would say nine-tenths of the Bible schools in the United States are antinomian today. Nine-tenths of them. Now, this fellow's a very, very godly man. He's saying to my friend, well, you can't obey the law of God. You can't obey the Ten Commandments. So my friend said to him, he said, tell me, Hubie, Hubie, do you have really trouble of coveting, setting your heart upon the other guy's wife? Do you covet what he has? Oh, no, no, I don't covet anybody, anything. Well, tell me, uh, Hubie, are you a liar? What does the Bible say about a liar? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Are you a liar? Oh, no, 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 I don't lie. Well, do you murder? No. Do you steal? No. Well, Yubi, are you disrespectful? Don't you obey your parents? He said, oh, I love my mom and daddy. I love them very much, and I obey them, and I honor them. And he went down like this. He said, well, tell me, no, Yubi, which one of these Ten Commandments is it you can't keep? <laughs> Did you get that? See, that's a false humility. It's a false humility. I couldn't name a more godly man than Hubie Mitchell, but he's had a lot of terrible teaching. A lot of terrible teaching. I often say, bless his heart, his heart was way ahead of his head. <laughs> and there's a lot of people today, a lot of people today in our country, thank God their heart's way ahead of their head. But God doesn't want it to be that way. Our head ought to be ahead of our heart to direct which where the heart's going to go. Tomorrow morning, we're going to just study the heart all morning. Boy, that's some subject to heart. Finally, he says, well, see, he'd been saying it so long, Adolf Hitler said, 
You can say anything to human beings enough time. It can be the most ridiculous thing in the world. But if you say it enough times, it'll make it what? True. True. Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Now, what does it mean to fulfill? It means to meet the demands of it, doesn't it? Now, in Romans 8, 4, Paul wrote that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What do we mean after the flesh? After the fulfilling of the gratification of the five senses. Is that right? That the righteous, that's Romans 8, 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, the things of God. Now, please turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Now, watch this. For, uh, what's the main characteristic of the age of grace? Sin shall not have dominion over you, not have power over you. Okay? Now, look at it closely. For you're not under law, you're not under a system of regulations, but under grace, a relationship. Not under regulations, but under a right relationship with Jesus and with our Heavenly Father and with our fellow man. So salvation is coming into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with our Heavenly Father and His Spirit, and with one another. Now get that. Relationship. Grace is a relationship. It's not regulation. But now we're going to be able to tell here in a little while how to tell if you're in grace, if the relationship is right. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, please, to 1 John 4. 1 John, the first epistle of John, the fourth chapter, the third verse. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not what? Well, if something isn't burdensome, then what is it? What's the opposite of not burdensome? Light, huh? joyful, light. Now, what did Jesus say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, uh, upon you, and learn of me, for my my yoke is what? Thought is impossible. Yoke is easy, and my burden is what? Hey, who who are we going to believe here? We're going to believe Jesus and the Word of God, or are we going to believe a bunch of half-cracked Bible teachers? Sometimes I think they're fully cracked, not just half-cracked. Yes, my yoke is easy and my burden. By the way, did you ever see a yoke that was just one yoke? No. What's usually there beside it? Another one. Another one. So when we take his, he's right beside us. And he says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light because he's only that far away. Listen, I've been riding in my car many a time to serve the Lord and being blessed by him. And I'd reach over and move my hat. I was afraid he'd set on. <laughs> that's how real. That's how near. That's how dear he can be when you put your head in that yoke. <laughs> you put your head in that yoke and then begin to pull your weight. Just what you can. And you'll find out that you won't feel like any martyr. You may preach yourself into an early grave, too, but you won't feel like a martyr. 
Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Whoa, we got it. It is impossible, haven't we? Oh, why is it light? Because of a tender relationship with him. You get that? A tender relationship with him. And we love our fellow man as we love ourselves. Whenever we sin against our fellow man, it's because we don't really love him, isn't it? Something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. Now turn First Timothy 1.5. 1 Timothy 1.5. Burden is lie. Yes. For his commandments are not grievous. Why? Because they're made in perfect accord with our nature. Now, 1 Timothy 1.5. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience of faith and faith. Now, what word could we have there instead of end? Goal. Goal. That's right. <laughs> when Peter said... Now the end is at hand. I heard a young man preaching that Jesus may come any moment. He's saying the end is at hand. No, <laughs> what he's talking about, the goal was at hand. Jesus was there. <laughs> you get that? Because don't forget, if they preached it, that the end was at hand 1,900 years ago, if they meant that Jesus come at any moment, then they missed it 1,900 years, didn't they? And they didn't believe that. They didn't believe that he was coming in their lifetime. That's a very easy thing to show. They didn't believe Jesus was coming in their lifetime. They had a world to get evangelized, didn't they? They weren't going to let anything like that come in. Even Paul wrote the second book of Thessalonians to straighten out some of those who would have you believe that they, he had taught that. He hadn't. The whole second book of Thessalonians to straighten out people, not apostles, not those great disciples, but those people, the hangers-on, who are now teaching, and he may come any moment. Mind you, he told him to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He meant to give him enough time to do it, didn't he? Now, look at this. Now, the end of the command. Now, the goal of the commandment. All right? Now, what is the goal of the command? Charity. It's agape love. Out of a pure heart. Now, what is a pure heart? A pure heart is a heart that goes out and he does good acts, but no selfish intention of heart. No selfish mixture. He doesn't do it for rewards in heaven. He doesn't do it to get to heaven. He does it because he loves those people. He does it because he loves God. This is the love of, of Christ constraining us, not the love for Christ. This is the love of Christ. This is the kind of love he had, that God so loved the world. Agape love. You love because of the intrinsic value of the one you're loving and the thing that you're doing. Not to get something back. That'll take it out of the realm of being love. Now, the goal of the commandment. It's charity. Now, wait a minute. How do people make the laws today? I mean by that. How do the people look upon laws? Do they look upon them as a means or as an end in themselves? Now, think about this. It's a very, very serious point. Well, the legalist says, by obeying, by doing this, this, and this, I'll get to heaven, right? Well, then what is it in a case like that? It's a means. It's a means to, to something, isn't it? But wait a minute. What should it be? That's right. An end in itself. A goal in itself. You just do it because the inherent value of what you're doing and the one that you're doing it for. You just love that other person because they're, they're important. They're valuable. And God is important. And he's valuable. And we respect our fellow man because he is. One that deserves respect. He's valuable. I've had, I love to preach on the fifth commandment. Can you tell me what it is? 
Honor thy father and thy mother. Say, I better tell you where they're at, shouldn't I? Exodus 20. In fact, as you can find them several places in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. I'm going to show you that Paul quotes a lot of them. The great grace preacher. In Romans 13, he's quoting them. So here comes a lad. He says, hey, you'd say honor my father and my mother. Look, you know what my dad is? You know what my mother is? You tell me to honor them? Let me say this, friends. If I owe someone $100, should I pay them back? I have an obligation, don't I? What's their character got to do with whether I pay them back or not? That's right. Not a thing. Doesn't have a thing to do with it. I don't care what your parents were, neither does God. You honor them. You cherish them. Some people said, well, what does it mean to honor? Well, if you have a right attitude and the right disposition of heart, it'll mean this, to cherish, to love, to obey, and also to make them look good. To make them bring honor to them. In the early days that I was president of the W.A. Whitney Corporation, the Spengler family owned it, and one of them is now with a YWAM over in Hawaii. And these two boys would come down. They'd work in the plant in the summertime. And let me tell you something about these two lads. They were the best workers in the whole place. Immensely wealthy. But you should have seen them work. They expected no privileges, no advantages because their family owned it. Boy, did they make their dad look good. <laughs> you see that? How do you know a, a person's dad if you don't ever see him? By the way their kids act. By the way their kids act. Now, Jesus said, as my father has sent me, even so send I. Now, he that has seen me has seen the father. What he simply meant with was, if the father had been here in the flesh, he would have acted and reacted like Jesus did. Is that right? Mm -hmm. All right. Jesus said, as my father has sent me, even so send I. You. What's he saying there? Well, when they saw me, they could see the Father. So when they see you, who should they see? Jesus. That's right. fact is, I often pray about my daughters and pray about some of my missionary friends. I'll say, dear Lord, help them today to walk so close to Jesus that the world can't tell them apart. Shouldn't that be the prayer of every one of our hearts? And we'd walk so close to him that the world couldn't tell us apart because we're one. Is that right? Now, does that sound like we're trying to get away with what we can and still be a Christian? Why, that's looking for avenues of service, isn't it? To our fellow man and to God. You see, look, friends, a person who's right with God, you don't have to dangle him over hell every Sunday morning and whip him to get him to go out and do something. Your problem is to hold him down. Yes, it's to hold him down, it's to regulate him so he doesn't go out and preach himself to death and he, and he doesn't neglect a lot of things back here that he should do. It's to regulate them, not to stir them up and not have to beat them every Sunday morning. No, no, it's a relationship is right with Jesus. You'll see that there is a great big thing that's going to happen. Now, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to render him excellent. Now, let me show you where law fits with the saved person.
Let me show you where law fits with the saved person. In the state of Illinois, where I live, we have a law against beating your wife. They can put you in jail for it, and I think they ought to. Now, if you come to our house, there's no place that you'll find a system of rules written on the on our walls or our shades. I love my wife. My wife loves me. I love my children. My children love me. But let's say my wife begins to go to the racetrack. Now, let's say I'm 10 years ago and my kids were home. Let's say she begins to go to the racetrack and she's gambling. She loses all the money. We don't have money to buy groceries, to buy clothes for the kids, make a payment on the house. She comes home. No food, no clothes. Say, honey, why do you do this? This is not the way I believe. The kids don't believe. I don't think you believe this way. Please don't go to the racetrack. I don't want you to do this anymore. Well, next Friday, she, she gets all the paycheck. She goes to the racetrack. She loses it all. She comes home the same way. Well, honey, if this keeps up, we're going to be turned out of our house. We're going to have nothing to feed the kids. Now, I absolutely insist you do not take the paycheck and go to the racetrack. Next Friday, she goes to the racetrack. In fact, the next Friday, she comes home with a couple of racetrack touts. I've said, honey, I've asked you not to do this, not to even go to the racetrack, let alone to bring other men into this home. And now you're, you've even, you're under the influence of liquor. I absolutely insist that you stop this. Next Friday, she comes home with a racetrack tout. She's lost all the money. Here we are. We've hawked the furniture. I say, don't do this. I insist you not do this anymore. She grabs a butcher knife and she says, well, you old blue nose you. You old blue nose you. By the way, I've been called that. Not by my wife, of course. You old blue nose you. I don't want to live. I don't want to be like this. And she takes a butcher knife and she takes a slice at me. So I duck it. And I come up and right there. That, oh, I don't want I don't want to get carved up with that butcher knife. And she drops a butcher knife, she's also dropped to the floor. Now you can pull down the shade and it says, Thou shalt not beat thy wife. And Harry Khan is guilty before the state of Illinois. Is that right? I'm guilty. I've beaten my wife. Ah, but what got wrong before I beat my wife? Think. What went to pot? My relationship with my wife has gone to pot. I've broken the law, haven't I? I'm guilty. Say, what do you think this is saying to Christians today? People think they're Christians. They're not breaking the law of God. What's it saying? That's right. The relationship's going to pot. You better get back to the altar. Because there's consequences either side of Calvary. He doesn't redesign man when he comes to the Calvary. So, if you're breaking the law of God, that shows you that your relationship with God is not the way it should be. Now, do you see where the law fits in the New Testament? It isn't license to do as we please. Because let me tell you something about freedom, dear friends. Freedom exists only in proportion to wholesome restraint. Freedom without wholesome restraint leads to license. License leads to bondage. And bondage evaporates freedom, doesn't it? You get that? Want me to say that again? Yeah. Freedom exists 
only in proportion to wholesome restraint. Freedom exists only in proportion to wholesome restraint. Freedom without license or freedom without restraint leads to license. License leads to bondage. And bondage evaporates freedom. So, Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And I will come unto you, and my Father and I, and we will come and take up our abode. Is that right? Come and live in you. An abode is a place where someone lives. And Paul says, you are a habitation of God through the Spirit. What is a Christian? A man in whom Christ dwells. He's come there to live. And Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and I and my Father will come and take up our abode with you. So, what should the commandments do, the law? Show us about our relationship. But, dear friends, if you want to see conviction of sin, just preach the wonderful law of God, any one of those commandments, how right, how reasonable, how wonderful, how intelligent, how fit, how practical, and you'll find that the blessed Holy Ghost will stand behind and they begin to see God in the right way and they'll begin to convict of sin in a way you never, never dreamed. And I'll tell you, you'll see people that'll go down what they used to call in the last century when 1800 laid out under conviction of sin unconscious on Yale Bowl. They had Redfield's disease under conviction of sin unconscious. You preach the wonderful law of God the way it should with the love of Christ. You won't have cheap grace easy believism. You won't have antinomians in there, but you'll see a lot of converted people because you'll see the rightness, the reasonableness, the wonderfulness of our great God because it is a, the law is a mirror of his wonderful mind because he loves us.